Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, we try to make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering this week. First off, we've got a spoon-feed review of pediatric UTIs. After that, GCS of 8 intubate, right? Then a spoon feed review of acute pancreatitis. After that, the fourth article is on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, paramedic 2's 6-12 to 12 month data, and then finally a nerve block solution to renal colic. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which were brought to you by the exceptional Vivian Lay, Jordan Dozer, and Clay Smith. So without further delay, here's the first article, which was titled Contemporary Management of Urinary Tract Infections in Children, out of the Journal of Pediatrics. This is a wonderful review of the current literature on pediatric UTI treatment, and here are our top 10 takeaways by our author Vivian Lay. Now let's get to it. First off is going to be knowing your risk factors. These are going to be female sex patients or uncircumcised infant boys. Younger age is more at risk. White race, vesicoureteral reflux, congenital anomalies affecting the GU system, bladder or bowel dysfunction, and any iatrogenic instrumentation of the urinary tract. Once you've got those risk factors down, then you've got to keep an open mind. Since symptoms are not always going to be as straightforward as you'd like them to be, of course. In verbal children, you're looking for dysuria, urgency, frequency, abdominal pain or flank pain, and new incontinence. In infants, who of course can't tell you what their symptoms are, just always keep UTIs in mind, especially if there's any fever. When trying to test these patients, you have to know that where you get the urine matters. You can get a toilet-trained child to give a midstream urine sample, but otherwise the only really trustworthy samples are going to be from a catheter insertion or a suprapubic tap. Bedside UTI screening is limited. Dipsticks just aren't that great at looking for things like leukocyte esterase, and urine microscopy is only slightly better. Recall an article that we covered a month or two ago, and remember that the degree of positivity on these tests matters. So you can use something like UTI Calc to take advantage of that and get the most out of your tests. Speaking of tests, the urine culture is something you should get. It'll take a day or two to come back, of course, but the results can change your treatment. And remember that the cutoffs for positivity are going to change depending on which kind of culture that you collected. So there's a 50,000 CFU per ml cutoff for catheter specimens. There's a 100,000 for a clean catch specimen and just 1,000 CFUs per ml for a suprapubic aspiration. So with that, always keep in mind that it's not always going to be a UTI. Remember that our tests are fallible and so are we. The most common errors are going to be from contaminated urine samples, asymptomatic bacteria, and sterile pyuria. When your other tests fail, we like to move to imaging, but imaging is not going to be necessary in most cases in the acute setting. An ultrasound, cystourethrogram, or renal scintography might be necessary, of course, depending on the specific case, but these are typically going to be safe to be done after the treatment of the infection. In terms of complications, these can be short or long-term. Urosepsis is what's really to look out for in the short term, besides, of course, the more common dehydration, electrolyte imbalances, and febrile illnesses. In the long-term, upper tract infections are going to be what's going to lead to renal scarring, which can cause hypertension and chronic kidney disease. In a child with a febrile UTI, you should start antibiotics within 48 hours of the fever onset. This will reduce the chances of renal scarring and complications. 
Check your local antibiograms to decide on what choice of antibiotics is exactly right for you. But in most cases of febrile UTIs, they should be treated for 7 to 10 days. And in non-febrile UTIs, treat for 3 to 5 days. Lastly, antimicrobial prophylaxis is generally not recommended. This will only be for select patients with recurrent UTIs or those with high risk of renal scarring. So in a spoonful, that's the gist of it. That's most of everything that you need to know about pediatric UTIs. Then we have the second article, which is titled Isolated Traumatic Brain Injury Routine Intubation for GCS 7 or 8 May Be Harmful out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. GCS of 8, intubate, right? I mean, it rhymes, it's catchy, we all know it really well, so it must be true. Well, it is recommended by the ATLS and the EAST guidelines, so likely it's a pretty solid recommendation for trauma patients, at least, or I'd hope. Of course, this isn't going to be a perfect rule. It certainly doesn't apply very well to intoxicated patients. So even in trauma patients, I think that this dogma bears reconsidering from time to time. This study was a retrospective study done using the TQIP database that included 2,700 adults with isolated head traumas and GCSs of 7 or 8. With the known confounders adjusted for, like the head injury severity score, intubations within one hour of arrival to the emergency department was associated with an increased odds of mortality compared to delayed or no intubation. There was an odds ratio of 1.79 for mortality, again, when they were intubated within one hour of arrival. These patients also had more complications compared to delayed or no intubation group combined. Now, a total of 68% of these patients were intubated within one hour of arrival, 23% were never intubated, and 8% had a delayed intubation. And it was actually this group with delayed intubations that had the worst mortalities, more days in the vent, longer hospital stays, and the most complications. So from this data, the authors actually proposed a new policy to change their criteria for immediate intubation to be patients less than 45 years old, a GCS of 7, and a head injury severity score of 5. So in this cohort, that would have saved three unnecessary intubations and led to seven early rather than delayed intubations. What they're saying here is to lower the GCS cutoff to 7, which would actually raise the threshold for intubation. Now, what they propose makes sense. It would move more patients down one sort of risk bracket from this study. So to go from delayed to early intubation, or from early to not being intubated. But their primary outcome was essentially that immediate intubation is associated with a higher mortality, and so you'd actually be increasing the number of immediately intubated patients. So I understand what they did here, but their data kind of undercuts itself in the way that it's presented, so it's not very well displayed. In a spoonful, we may have to consider intubating at a GCS of 7 or lower rather than 8, but this study alone won't be the thing that makes that happen. Following that, we have the third article, which was titled Acute Pancreatitis, a Review Out of the JAMA. Acute pancreatitis this is a very common GI illness, accounting for many, many admissions. So let's review. The top causes of acute pancreatitis are going to be gallstones and alcohol. No, I know, it's not scorpion bites. I was surprised as you are. And don't forget that hypercalcemia and hypertriglyceridemia are also common causes, though. Less common, on the other hand, are everything else, including ERCPs, autoimmune disease, structural problems, or any number of medications. The classic presentation is going to be epigastric pain, which radiates to the back and may be worse with eating, drinking, or lying down. To make the diagnosis, you're going to need two out of three things. A clinical picture of abdominal pain, a positive amylase or lipase over three times the limit of normal, or CT evidence of pancreatitis. 
Now, since the spectrum of pancreatitis reaches from mild edema all the way to necrotizing with severe illness and sepsis, risk stratification is important. The best and simplest way to do this is the BISAP score. Ranson and Apache 2 are also good options, of course, but they're much more cumbersome. And once the diagnosis is all sewn up, then you treat. There's not a lot of magic here, really. Early fluid repletion with lactated ringers is best. In terms of feeding these patients, it's favored to aim for enteral nutrition within 24 hours rather than parenteral nutrition, since it decreases the mortality and the occurrence of organ failure. Aim for a low-fat, soft PO diet. If they can't tolerate food, then you'll have to put a tube in. And then, if they still can't tolerate that, then and only then should you resort to TPN. Follow-up in these patients means trying to get rid of the risk factors if possible. So if the gallbladder was the culprit, then sooner or later a cholecystectomy might be needed. If alcohol might be contributing, then resources also exist for that. Medications can also help with lowering triglycerides if that needs to be done. Anyways, be on the lookout for reoccurrences and complications. Pancreatic insufficiency and pseudocysts are things to watch out for. In a spoonful, that's our spoon feed on pancreatitis. And to follow, we have the fourth article titled Long-Term Outcomes of Participants in the Paramedic 2 Randomized Trial of Adrenaline in Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest out of the Journal of Resuscitation. All right, friends, back to epinephrine for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, the quick recap is that the Paramedic 2 trial, which compared epinephrine to placebo, found that there was improved survival to discharge at 30 days, but no improvement in neurologically intact survival. In fact, those who received epinephrine actually had worse neurological impairment. So to update this, we have this long-term follow-up of 8,000 patients from the Paramedic 2 trial at 6 and 12 months. In this farther out group, the results were as follows. There was better overall survival in the epinephrine group at 6 and 12 months for an adjusted odds ratio of 1.43 and 1.38 respectively. However, despite there being better overall survival, there was no significant difference in neurologically intact survival. So it's keeping more patients alive, but not with better neurological outcomes. In a spoonful, these long-term follow-up results mirror the results of the early paramedic 2 trial data. Epinephrine increases survival, but not with neurological status intact. And lastly, we have the fifth article, which is titled Erector Spinae Plane Block versus Non-Steroidal Anti-Inflammatory Drugs for Severe Renal Colic Pain, a pilot clinical feasibility study out of the International Journal of Clinical Practice. Now, I can't say that I've ever actually experienced myself, but you only need to watch someone dry heave so much to get the point that kidney stones can be really, really painful. To treat this pain, typically a mixture of NSAIDs and opioids are used. As the world regularly looks towards all the options that we can find to avoid opioid use, we find ourselves eyeing regional anesthesia more and more, which is a personal favorite topic of mine, actually. And so here we have the first study describing use of the erector spinae plane blocks, abbreviated to ESP blocks, for renal colic. These authors performed a prospective randomized pilot study to compare the effect of ESP blocks to NSAIDs in patients with renal colic as measured on a visual analog scale at various time points within the first hour. Secondary outcomes were the need for opioid medications and overall patient satisfaction. Since this was just a pilot study, only 20 patients were included in each arm, but despite that, the data was actually fairly compelling. The ESP group showed a pain score reduction of 81 out of 100 points in just the first 5 minutes, from 99 to 18. After that, at each 15-minute mark for the first hour, the pain scores were just 6, 4, 2, and 2. Whoa, that's, that's, I mean, that's no pain at all, really. 
This was compared to the NZ group, which dropped only 27 points, from 96 to 69. And then their scores were in the 20s and 30s for the first hour. The difference between the groups was statistically significant at all time points. And on top of that, half of the NSAID group actually required opioids for breakthrough pain, while none of the ESP block patients did. Now, since I probably piqued your interest in this, I'll have to mention that I've done these blocks myself and they're really not that difficult to do. Take a 30cc syringe and use it to inject 0.25% bupivacaine into the fascial plane between the transverse process of T8 and the erector spinae muscle. There are many excellent resources to help you learn the relevant sonographic anatomy online, and you can add adjuncts to the bupivacaine to increase the duration of your block if you so choose. In a spoonful, consider adding ESP blocks, also called erector spinae plane blocks, to your armamentarium for treating renal colic pain in order to reduce the use of NSAIDs and opioids. Alright guys, that's it. Let's do a quick review of everything that we covered today to just solidify it in our brains. First off, we did a spoon feed review of pediatric UTIs. You can check the blog or the original article for more details. Second, if someone could come up with a catchy way to say that we should intubate a GCS of 7, then I am all ears. You'll probably have time though, since we'll need more data before making any changes like that. Third, we had another spoon feed review, and this was on pancreatitis. From the fourth article, there is no change in the paramedic two conclusions with longer-term follow-up. Patients who received epinephrine were more likely to be alive, but not more likely to be neurologically intact. And then fifth, erector spinae blocks were highly effective at treating renal colic pain in this small pilot study. Now then you've already earned them and we off them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that, as well as pricing, are at journalfeed.org, where at the very same place you can find all the articles summarized. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.